We read from the Word of God this morning from Judges chapter 5. Judges chapter 5. That you will hear the Word of God. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, and that people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, when war was in the gates, was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, or you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay away, stay with his ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. <clears throat> Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to, de- to the death. Naphtali, too on the heights of the field. The kings came. <clears throat> they fought, then fought. The kings of Canaan, at Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo. They got spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From the courses they fought against Sisera. 
the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horses' hooves with galloping, the galloping of the steeds. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window... She peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice, the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his, char- of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck, a spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for forty years. I was asked a question this morning. It was a very good question. Uh, not, not about the book of Judges, but about other books in the Old Testament. And the question was, when we read stories like these, where is Jesus in the story? As Christian people, we want to revert to finding Jesus wherever he can be found in the Bible and in our own lives. And my answer is the answer I'm going to give here because it's very important. Whenever you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, wherever you see the word God in the Old Testament, wherever you see the phrase the God of Israel in the Old Testament, wherever you see the words Lord God in the Old Testament, Jesus is there. Jesus hasn't become Jesus yet. Jesus is enjoying the fullness of divine life within the Godhead. And he's very active. When Isaiah saw the Lord God of Israel high and lifted up, John tells us he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. That's why Jesus uses so much the words I am to to introduce himself to the people of his day, drawing their minds back to the God that appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, if that's the case, then, this song has Jesus all over the place because this song is full of God. 
It's full of the Lord God of Israel, blessing the Lord and making melody to the Lord and adoring the Lord and remembering what the Lord did in the past and seeing that the Lord is still up to date in the present. Now, the background to the story is that uh, there were, was a period of 80 years of rest for Israel, and after that, a period of 20 years of oppression by Canaanites under the leadership of a man called Jabin, the king of Canaan, whose uh, terrorist, Sisera, his general, who was a, a terror monger among the Israelites for that 20-year period. And in response to that, the people cry out to God. God gives them a judge. And this judge doesn't look like the other judges in the book. Deborah is a prophetess. Several things that distinguish Deborah as a judge within Israel. First is that she's a woman. The others aren't. She's a prophetess. The others aren't. And she doesn't fight. The others do. Those are the features that distinguish her so they're apart from the other judges in Israel. She writes a poem. We have read the poem. It was a song to be sung by Deborah and by Barak, the one who was appointed through her, by God through her, to be the leader of the army of Israel. Barak is remembered in Hebrews 11 for his faith, his faith in God. And so what we have in chapter 4 then is the record, the story, a history of a military action. This man, Sisera, who has 900 iron chariots, has a military uh, supremacy over Israel. King Jabin is not seen on the battlefield. Sisera is the fighter who fights for him. He's a kind of unseen presence in the background. He's there forever at hand, but Sisera and his war machine are in action in the story. It's it's an action-packed story. And it reminds us at a spiritual level from our perspective that our adversary, the devil, is going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it was Deborah's great role to encourage Barak, who is leading the army, who's the fighter, in the work that he's doing. And there's a, there's a little incident. We, we noted it last week, but didn't enlarge on it. When uh, Barak is appointed to go and lead the, the army of Israel, well, there isn't an army of Israel. He's to get the army, first of all, and then lead it into battle. And Barak says that, that he'll do it, uh, without any hesitation, but he says, if you will go with me, I will go. And there's a very deliberate pattern there, a a reflection of what happens in Exodus chapter 33, when you remember God tells Moses to go down to Egypt and to bring out his people, rescue his people from their bondage there. Just as Deborah says to Barak, go to, go to war on behalf of Israel. And uh, Moses says to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, I won't go. And the Lord says to Moses, the very thing you've talked about is the very thing I was going to do anyway, whether you'd ask me 
or not, I was going to go with you. And there's a deliberate reflection of that event in the, in the uh, story we have here in chapter 4 of Deborah and uh, of Barak. She says to him, he, he says to her, I won't go unless you go with me. She says to him, well, of course I was going to go with you. So let's get on with the job. And off they go, and they do the job. And the, uh, there's a repetition by Deborah, who's the outward sign of the presence of God. She carries the Word of God with her, and she applies it to him. She says, the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you. Remember, he commanded you. The Lord has given Sisera into your hand. He won't kill him, but the Lord has given him into your hand. And the Lord goes out before you. You're not going into this on your own. The Lord is going with you. And those things that Deborah says to Barak encouraged him, but they're also meant to encourage us. So the Lord goes with us wherever we Wherever we are, whatever we're into in our life, whatever struggles we may be facing in our lives, whatever battles we may be fighting in our lives, we do not do so alone. The Lord God of Israel commanded you. The Lord God has given you the victory. The Lord God will go before you. Now, this man, Caesar, had earned a big reputation as a formidable enemy. He's a kind of anti-savior figure. He comes to be the secret weapon of the Canaanites against Israel. In fact, he ends up running away, leaving it, deserting his men, hiding for his life, and looking after number one. And the thing that leads to that is that there's a miracle that goes on here in the story. It's not obvious in chapter 4. It's made clear in chapter 5. And that is, Barak was told that he was to take the army or gather the army to the top of Mount Horeb, He was going to occupy the high ground. That's always a good military strategy. Occupy the high ground. The army of Canaan was going to come up by a little stream down there called Kishon. And uh, they were going to, there was flat territory around that stream. The, The chariots could ride there in safety, the tanks of their day. And the army of Israel was going to come down the side of the mountain and attack them. That was the strategy. In fact, what happened was, as the army of Canaan is coming along, the little brook Kishon is suddenly swollen into a torrent of water that sweeps away the chariots and many of the personnel in them, that sweeps the infantry that are coming up behind them and leaves Israel simply with the responsibility of coming down the mountain and chasing off the stragglers that are left. That's the background to the story. And Cicero runs off. He goes to one place he knows where he can find safety because it says that uh, there was peace between Jabin the king and the house of Heber the Kenite. So he goes looking for Mr. Heber who lives in this little village. He, he is... Uh, a dweller in tents, so he's a nomad. Uh, but he has a little business on the side. It's an ironworking business. Likely, Sisera has done some work with Mr. Heber in getting ironwork for his chariots and his weapons and so on. But he had not reckoned 
on Mrs. Heber. Wherever Mr. Heber is, she's been left on her own. And he, she recognizes him. She's not, a Jew, she's not an Israelite. She's not a God believer in that sense. Maybe she'd come to believe in the Israelites' God. We don't know. But she does love her neighbors. And she has seen the atrocities worked on her neighbors. And when she sees Sisera on his own, obviously, bedraggled and tired and thirsty and hungry and weary, she seizes the opportunity. All she has are the normal tools of her trade. We know this from, uh, we know a number of things about this passage. We we know that this song here in chapter 5 has now been proved by the archaeologists and the scientists who have examined it to have been written when it says it was written. You don't get that very often in scholarly circles when it comes to the Bible. They try very hard to argue that things weren't written when it says they were written. But this one is absolutely foolproof. You can trust this to have been written at the time it says it was written. It's a relief, I'm sure, to you. Your faith is strengthened by that immediately. Uh, But what we do know is that people who lived in tents, the, the nomadic people at this time, it was the job of the wife to put up the tents and to take them down again. So the tent peg and the mallet were things that she was familiar with. That was the tools of her trade. And I like the way in the song which it just says, you know, that her hands found the peg and the mallet and she set to work in hammering the mallet, the the peg into the back of Jabin's head. Well, that's a story for you to meditate on. And there are issues with it. Some people find issues with Bible stories where there aren't any. Uh, Some people think she broke some commandments. Maybe she did break some commandments, but she wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't in the covenant. Uh, But all we know is that when this man went into, asked if he could use her tent to hide in, and he goes into her tent to hide, and he falls down exhausted to rest, it says that J.L., the wife of Heber, took the tent peg, gripped the hammer and the tent peg, and drove it through his skull and pinned him to the floor. Well, it's off the back of that event then that Deborah composes a song. And I'm interested in, in the way in which this song of Deborah has been picked up and handled by reformed uh, individuals over the years. The great reformer Vermigli. Uh, if you ever get uh, a volume and read the letters that went between John Calvin and Vermigli, you'll realize that Calvin was a great admirer of Vermigli. He had been trained. Vermigli had been trained theologically. Calvin had not. And uh, he's constantly asking for Vermigli's view of things. And Vermigli says that this song belongs alongside the songs of Moses and Miriam 
of Hannah when she learns she's going to give birth to a child, Samuel, of the Jewish maidens when David slew Goliath, and in the New Testament, Mary and Zechariah and Simeon give their thanks to God in songs. And he asks some questions. This is one of the earliest images of music. And this, says Vermigli, sets the tone for or the scene for music in the church. And the grand theme of music in the church be, being the being and the acts of God. The being and the acts of God. And he refers to St. Augustine way back in history, who praises singing psalms in church. Though he worries at times that what moves him are the measures and the chords of the music rather than the words of the music. In other words, he had the same problem many people have with the effects of rock music in church today, which are just the same effects it has if you're an ordinary rock concert. I can never tell the difference, really, because it has the same effect. And St. Gregory, or, yeah, Gregory the Great puts it like this, whilst the sweetness of the voice is sought for, the life is neglected. He's talking about the music in his day. People like going for the sound of the music while they do not reflect in their lives the godliness that they should be. And when wicked manners provoke God, the people are ravished by the pleasantness of the voice. The pleasantness of the voice is more important than examining your own life. Well, Vermigli, when he's uh, discussing this passage, comes to the conclusion that godly and religious songs may be retained in the church, which is a great relief to us because we're still doing that. But he reminds us that there is no precept given in the New Testament for it. You might want to argue with Vermigli there. I would never argue with a reformer. I just pass on the message. So let's look at the song, and it's going to be very brief. It consists of three parts. The praise of God. The praise of God. You can see that praise is the focal point. Look at verse 2. Bless the Lord. To the Lord I will sing and make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out. Uh, the, the word, capitals L-O-R-D, uppercase, Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the object of the praise. And in the song, they remind, remind themselves of the way in which God has acted in the past. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. What are they doing there? They're comparing Scripture with Scripture. The events of the Bible sometimes give us a sense of deja vu all over again. We've been there before. Judges 4 and 5 were written with Exodus 14 and 15 in mind. In Exodus 14 and 15, as a friend of mine, Miles Van Pelt of RTS Jackson puts it, the Lord defeats a great army consisting of 
horses and chariots by drowning them in floodwaters. Both accounts tell that story. The Lord goes out before his people. He throws his enemies into great confusion. And the result is a narrative account, chapter 14 of Exodus, and a song in chapter 15 of Exodus, just as we have the narrative account in chapter 4 of Judges and the song in chapter 5. We learn that it's a good thing for God's people, kings and priests and people to praise God, the God who won, won a victory over Egypt at the Red Sea is the same God who acts for his people today. That's what they're doing. And you find this is how the Bible people think and speak. They, they compare Scripture with Scripture. They look at their circumstances and they say, well, God's done this before. King David, after them, captures the very same thought in Psalm 18, which we began with this morning. He starts by praising God for being my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And then his mind goes back to Sinai, and he thinks about what happened way back there a thousand years before him when God delivered Israel from Egypt. Then he said, the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembling. The Lord thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered His voice. Hailstones, lightning flashes in abundance, routed the enemy. Then the channels of water appeared. And I had deliverance from my enemies. He's looking back because he realizes that the God who was present with Moses and Miriam in their day with Deborah and Barak in their day, is with David in his day. And, beloved, he is the same God who is with us in our day to be our deliverer, our strength, our rock, our fortress, our shield, and the horn of our salvation. The other thing that we learn from the opening part of this song is that in the days of Shamgar and in the days of Deborah, it was not a safe place to live. Look at verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, back when he was the judge, and in the days of Jael, that is their days, the highways were abandoned. Nobody would take main streets. Travelers kept to byways in the scrub, in the bush, away so they wouldn't be seen perhaps and so they wouldn't be accosted or attacked or whatever. The villagers had become used to being the victims. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until Deborah arose as a mother in Israel. But she praises God that God has intervened. The commanders of Israel offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Secondly, we see the patience of God. Deborah and Barak celebrate the eagerness of people to sign up and leave everything to serve Israel and God. That's what we see in verse 9. 
And then again in verse uh, 13. Ordinary people. They weren't trained soldiers, but they joined up. Barak, who wasn't a trained general, took the levers of power, led them boldly and courageously and by faith. But there were others in Israel whose absence was palpable. In verse 15, while the others are marching down, we read that the tribe of Reuben was doing what? Among the clans of Reuben, we're told, there were great searchings of heart. And they challenge the tribe of Reuben, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds? Was it to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the tribes of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. What could you say about the Reubenites? Well, they thought a lot about the upcoming battle. They thought about what it would involve and how much it would cost and how long it would take and what were the, what were the dangers and could we, count, could we anticipate how much many men would be killed? And, and they thought a lot about this. That's why it's repeated in the poetry of Hebrew. The, the Hebrews, they repeat things in order that you realize that this is a bit of fun. They're having a bit of fun on, on the back of the Reubenites who did nothing. They dithered and dithered and dithered and did nothing. Or oh, there's Gilead. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. They were on the other side of the river. They looked at the river and they thought, well, we'd have to get boats. We'd have to get across the river. We'd have to take our stuff with us. It would be a lot of effort. And they looked at their boats and they talked about it. And they looked at their boats and they talked about it. And they didn't come either. The Danites, they didn't come. They just stayed with their ships and went fishing. And the Asherites, well, they didn't even attempt to go anywhere near the subject. Asher was still at the coast, down by the shore, on the beach, sunbathing, and they never came to help. Now, they are mentioned. these are mentioned because God is patient with his people. Some of his people will not come to help in the work of God. And these people didn't come to help in the work of God. But God came. God came. Those still waters of the little river, stream really of Kishon, suddenly changed into a raging torrent by which the enemy was swept away. And so we move from the praise of God and the patience of God to the promise of God that's caught up in the last part of the story. You'll see in the last part of the story, which begins in verse 24, of the song, uh, the song talks about J.L. and it talks about another woman, the mother of Sisera. I want to start by saying this, that these two women are a study of contrasts. You, I'm going to start with Sisera's mother first. There she is doing what any mother, I think, would do, looking for her son. She knows this, her son has gone into battle. She's looking on the horizon for him to return, and he hasn't come back yet, and she's wondering and worried, and one, his meal is getting cold, or maybe it's just really now old. 
and the princesses who attend to her, they, they start to reassure her. In fact, what they say she's thinking herself. Luke at verse 29, the wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answered herself. In other words, they, they just said what she was thinking. What was she thinking? Well, she was thinking, well, battles don't just go from two to six. Battles can take place over a longer or a shorter period of time. And then when you have battles, you've got to go around all these dead people you've killed and see if they've got anything precious or good or or sellable in their clothes or their shoes or in their bag or whatever. You've got to gather the spoil. And, well, you've got a bunch of men around here that need to get rid of their efforts. There's always Israelite women. And so you can go on a, a rape episode and rape the women of Israel. You read what's on the mother's mind and the princess's mind, and you see something of the character of the man that they're waiting for. That's the kind of man he is. There's a callousness, by the way. Callousness is mind-blowing. This is the kind of person Caesarea is, and these were the women in his life who just accepted his bad behavior. But on the other hand, Jael is called most blessed of women. That's a contrast between the curse of verse 23 and the blessing of verse 24. Blessedness is the opposite of cursedness under the curse of God. And you can't help but compare the the language that's used here of Jael with the language that's used of the Virgin Mary in Luke 1, blessed among women. We might be shocked by the violence that she showed towards this man, Sisera. But the Bible says she was blessed. The Bible doesn't say she was a saint. The Bible doesn't commend her behavior. But the Bible says she was blessed. Blessing is something good. It is the highest good. Blessedness is salvation itself. This woman did not belong to Israel by nature. But she acted on behalf of Israel. And the blessing of God was placed upon her, which is the opposite of a curse. Satan acted to bring a curse on all of humanity by deceiving the first woman and by the transgression of the first man. The story of the execution of Sisera takes up so much space in the narrative and in the victory song. It involves striking, crushing, shattering, piercing, And the very language that's used there takes us right back in the Bible. You see, the way you understand the Bible is to read the Bible. You say, well, I've heard all this before. Where have I heard it before? Well, I've heard it before in Genesis 3, where Eve, the first believer, is promised a seed that would finally crush Satan, that the offspring of the woman would one day deal the final blow to Satan and sin by crushing his head. My friend Miles Van Pelt at Jackson puts it like this. In seeing this connection, we are reminded 
that Israel's greatest need is not salvation from foreign oppression, but salvation from sin that has led to that oppression. In the same way, our greatest need is not to be rescued from earthly temporal consequences of our sin, but to be saved from sin itself and the curse of death that results from it. And what that takes you to is it takes you to Jesus, who is the serpent crusher. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent. And it takes it to us. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly, crushing the evil one. This little story is an anticipation of the crushing of Satan. And so as we read this story, uh, we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus present throughout this chapter in the words of the Lord, in the words of God, in the words of the God of Israel, in the words of the one who has been active in destroying the enemy. There is Jesus. And we are pointed backwards and forwards to the day when the darkness is penetrated by the light. And when the one who is the light of the world comes into the world, he comes into the world to bring to those who suffer in darkness, to bring them out of the darkness into the glorious brightness and liberty of the children of God. We read this chapter and you would be, I think you would be unusual if you weren't asking questions about how that relates to where, how we be behave as Christians today. Israel's living between the, Iron Age, uh, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. It's a long time ago. They had the law of God. They didn't have very many people helping them to put the law of God into practice. We live under the law of Christ, and under the law of Christ, we are to love our enemies, and we are to pray for those who persecute us, and we're to bless those who curse us. That's really hard. It's easier to get a rabble together, angry enough to fight. It's harder to get the people of God together, humble enough to pray and to wait and to suffer, and to die for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please help us to understand what is a very difficult place in your word uh, that raises questions in our mind, but help us not to run away from them, but to thank you for your faithful servants then, Barak and Deborah this woman jail. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep us. We, we'd rather not be quite as violent as jail was. We'd rather be those in whom the fruit of the Spirit is now, because of Christ having come, available to us. Would you work that into us, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.